Welcome to the Hook and Hunt Experience with hunting and fishing expert and host of Hook and Hunt TV, Jim Crowley, and radio host and outdoorsman, Drew Kirby. On today's show, we'll cover fishing, hunting, outdoor adventures, wild game recipes, and so much more. Brought to you by Ned's Pretty Good Garage Bait and Tackle, home of the $8.99 oil change. If you have questions, comments, or want to offer up some suggestions, reach out on Facebook at Hook and Hunt Experience. And now, here's Jim Crowley and your host, Drew Kirby. Ah, it's another week, Jim Crowley. We're back. <laughs> it just sounded really weird, man. Your voice came across really weird. <laughs> well, Jim, let me tell you, we're going to have some information in this show. If you're a waterfowl hunter, if you're a duck hunter. Oh, yeah. Oh, you're gonna you're gonna enjoy this because a it's a little bit of scouting done for you, right? And I, I tell you what, I didn't know all this this information. We have um, Brad Bortner on who worked for the Fish and Wildlife Service for three, 33 years. He was the basically the top guy for the last six years before he retired. So some of the information he's going to give you today, guys, I didn't know some of this stuff. And I've been a waterfowl hunter for a long time. This is actually how we can help ourselves as waterfowl hunters or actually help the Fish and Wildlife Service help us as yeah. waterfowl hunters. Yeah, this is a good, great interview. We'll talk to Brad in just a few minutes. So stick around for that. And Jim, uh, you had quite the little adventure over this past week. Oh, and It was I, crazy, man. I, I saw pictures and I was floored. It, it was it was crazy, man. I've been my dad's been taking me out to Lake Michigan since I was around seven years old, right? And we've always had a good time. I can't think of a really bad trip we've ever had. But to tell you that I had the best trip ever in my life ever, and the whole thing lasted two and a half hours. My stepdaughter turned sixteen, and so I asked Brooke. I said, "Hey, what do you want to do for your birthday?" And we started talking. She wants to go fishing. She loves to fish. That's great. So I, I know. So I'm like, okay. So we book a charter. Uh, with my buddy Brian Griffin from Griffin Sport Fishing Charters. And he is, I've waterfowl hunted with this guy. I've fished with him. He's hes one of the best guides and the top two guides that I've ever had in my life, ever, anywhere I've went. Well, to make a long story short, we ended up with five of us on the boat. We were done in two and a half hours between coho and lake trout with a little over 200 pounds of fish. Wow. 200 pounds of fish in two we hours. Had, at one time, at one time, when we weighed them afterwards. Brooke had a 16-pound lake trout on that she got in. Her brother had a 12, and I had an 18. Wow. Those all three were on at one time, and all three successfully landed. And it went haywire for the next hour and a half. She was already a fan of fishing. Did this really reel her in? You reel her in? So I saw what you did there. That's good. Um, she was literally laying down in the cabin of the boat, and when her next turn came around, she goes, I'm going to skip a turn. I'm like, are you... She's like, my arms are so tired. After <laughs> after we told her, I go, you don't want to, you don't want to be remembered as as this sister who skipped a turn. She's like, I'm right there. I'm going. I'm going. So it was just great, man. We had a great family adventure and we all split up the fish and we actually smoked some of the lake trout last night and it was fantastic. They obviously are a charter and they know exactly what to do. That's the kind of fishing that I want to do. You know, we've talked yeah. about this with technology and and experience. Right. You want to go catching. You don't really want to go sit there and and spend a full day and catch nothing. Right. And this was a five-hour charter. We were done, lines in, at 7.35 in the morning. We were done. 
Did you just we like, all had our full take limits. the boat in circles then after that for oh, the other just, three hours? We went back in. They cleaned all the fish. We were on the road going home by quarter nine. It was a- absolutely amazing. Everybody tired, worn out, smelling like a coho. It was great. <laughs> and definitely something that you would recommend to other families oh. or... I said we we just to just to talk the Great Lakes salmon fishing. We need to have Brian on the show sometime because he's a wealth of information, a great guy, fantastic personality, and we just the family had a blast. We're gonna talk to Brad Bortner next. This week's Hook and Hunt Experience guest star is brought to you by Hook and Hunt TV, where our slogan is "God made me a fisherman and a hunter." I'm proud of both and apologize to no one. Watch the latest episode at HookandHuntTV.com. We're back, and we have a great guest, Jim Crowley, uh, a guy that has really made an impact on waterfowl in the uh, the entire United States. Yeah, I mean, if, if you're going to talk about the top top of the food chain, so to speak, <laughs> he was a guy at the top of the Fish and Wildlife Service, Brad Bortner. Welcome to the Hook and Hunt Experience. How you doing? Hey, Jim and Drew. Oh, Brad, there was some stuff that you wanted um, to talk about, and I'm glad you wanted to come, come on the show. Um, but talk a little bit about the regulations and the stuff that, that you thought that our listeners should know about. Particularly wanted to talk about the Harvest Information Program, yep. which, is, which is the way the states and the Fish and Wildlife Service cooperate together to get information about harvest uh, from hunters. And it's, a, it's kind of a three-part partnership. And the first starts off with the hunters, when they purchase their license, they get something called a HIP registration, a HIP mm-hmm. certification. And part of that in- includes uh, answering five questions. And uh, those questions basically are determining how many uh, ducks, geese, rails, coots, snipe, um, more hens that, you know, uh, that the hunter shot the previous year. That information is passed on to the Fish and Wildlife Service, and they use that information to conduct a survey of a hunter's activities the cur- during a current year. What we're finding is in a, in a lot of places when, when a hunter goes to buy their license, they're either not asked those questions or the clerk puts down zeros or the hunter mistakenly just puts down zeros and goes on, uh, thinking that that's somehow working in their benefit, you know, because the regulations will be more restrictive if they answer the questions or that, that information is going to be somehow used against hunters. And I wanted to dispel that, that rumor uh, or that, you know, that feeling. Those questions are not the harvest survey. Those questions are basically that allow the Fish and Wildlife Service to sample uh, hunters and ask hunters what they harvested in a, in a more efficient manner. It's, it's kind of like finding needles in a haystack. Mm-hmm. Um, as you know, all, I think all hunters have always heard that, that 90% of the ducks are shot by 10% of the hunters. And finding those 10%, and getting an accurate estimate from those 10% is, is difficult. And if we had to sample every hunter out there, we would have to send out many more surveys. So I'm just urging hunters to make sure that they answer those questions. And if, you know, if a clerk at a store doesn't ask you those questions, to make sure that they ask you the questions and that you answer those questions in a, in a truthful manner. If you are drawn from the Fish and Wildlife Service, they will send you either a letter or a uh, an email link to a website where they're going to ask you to record the number of times you went out and the number of birds that you shot for you know the state that you're being sampled in. So you, if you are tra- a traveling hunter and you go to multiple different states, you should um, be answering those questions about the state that you're buying that license in. So, Jim, if you if you traveled to Maryland to go 
um, you know, sea duck hunting, sure. you should be you should be answering the questions about yeah. what your sea duck harvest was in Maryland last year. And if you didn't shoot any, you didn't shoot any. But if you're back in Illinois and you shot, you know, 30 plus ducks, say I shot 30 ducks in Illinois last year, that'll help uh, increase the efficiency of the survey and it'd be more accurate, more precise. And the reason hunters should care, you know, what's it, what's in it for them is that that harvest information is provides a major source of information that goes into setting regulations. It, it directly feeds into the harvest strategies for morning doves, for pintails, for a variety of different species. When those are drawn like that, like this year, I think, um, what do we go down to one pintail here in Illinois? I think some of that information then is based on the surveys that people turn back in. Yes. The way harvest management works between the, the states and the, or the flyways and the Fish and Wildlife Service, they agree to the, the rules of the game before the game is played. So okay. they, they, basically, they basically say, okay, if the breeding population of um, this bird is X, Y, or Z, if it's this wet or this dry, or the harvest is at this level, it basically criteria that's going to um, determine what the season's going to be in the future year. That harvest information that I'm um, that I'm asking the hunters to make sure that they provide is a key component of that. Those rules of the game include the harvest information. The harvest information goes hand in hand with preseason information on on uh, yeah. what the duck numbers are. Sure, you know we the Fish and Wildlife Service and the states um, ban ducks every year. Though there's something uh, the number of bans that get shot is called the reporting rate. Mm-hmm. That, that that helps us determine a a harvest rate. Also, they have we have breeding population surveys where they go and fly around in the breeding areas of the U.S. and Canadian prairies and um, up into the Canadian boreal forest. And the harvest information and all that information goes into um, setting the regulations. I have a question for you, um, kind of along that line. And we have a we have a very good friend, a mutual friend in common, Pat Gregory. Pat and I we spend a lot of time each year um, hunting together. And in your opinion, from what you saw for all those years when you were working for Fish and Wildlife Service, have you seen the flight patterns change comparatively? Bird distribution has changes with weather um, and water conditions on an annual Mm -hmm. basis. And I think what's going on in the way of climate change and changing in, in agricultural patterns and many, probably many other factors, the distribution of birds is changing where birds used to may, maybe go to Louisiana and Arkansas, mm-hmm. they, may, they may be, you know, stopping in Missouri and Illinois now, um, you know, for, for mallards. Or, you know, Canada geese are another ones that show, um, have shown great changes in the distribution. I can remember when I first started, um, there was a concern about the number of Canada geese that were no longer going to Louisiana because they were stopping in Illinois. Right, right. Um, and, you know, things have changed over the years. Um, and, you know, and you, you could probably tell me better than I, than I know, um, you know, what's the Canada goose numbers, um, at crab orchard, uh, refuge now compared to what it was 30 years ago. You see agricultural patterns, uh, change. I've seen soybeans and corn being grown all the way up into North Dakota and into Saskatchewan now. It never used, there never used to happen like that. And a whole variety of factors are changing, um, the distribution of, of ducks and geese and, and probably a lot of other birds too. Is there any way that, that that will change back? I mean, obviously if the climate kind of shifts and goes back to the way it was 30 years ago, 
but uh, is there anything that hunters in Illinois and Missouri and Louisiana can do to encourage the ducks to come further? I think there's a variety of things that can be done um, of, you know, consciously, again, it, conservation works. And if you look at waterfowl conservation and how successful that's been over the last 50 years versus um, the distribution of a lot of other species that doesn't have, don't have the habitat programs, um, there have been major changes in the amount of habitat that's being protected for waterfowl and managed for waterfowl. Uh, I would, con- you know, I would hope that hunters would continue to support cooperative conservation programs, either state, federal, or or non-governmental, or or working with their local farmers. I think your real question is: Is it a reversible pattern? If economics change and you know soybeans are no longer planted and harvested all the way to North Dakota to feed uh, Chinese or something else like that. Sure, it could change back. I don't have a crystal ball big enough. Uh, otherwise, right. I'd be betting on. Otherwise, I'd be betting on the stock market. Yeah, right, <laughs> and then we'd be having you on the show more. So that'd be good. So, Brad, I'm looking through some of the the research, and we just talked about how the ducks maybe aren't going as far down as they they used to in Louisiana. But Louisiana, over the last ten years, is the number one duck harvest state in the country. Will that more than likely change over the next 10 years? Um, I hope not. There's an awful lot to be said for the tradition of waterfowling throughout the state, you know, throughout all the states. Um, I think what's happening is the species composition changes is, for example, for example, within the Mississippi Flyway, Arkansas, Louisiana used to be the big mallard harvest states. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're seeing more of that in Missouri now and in Illinois. You've seen a shift of white-fronted geese from Texas to, um, to Arkansas now. I think there's still going to be the tr- you know, more traditional patterns of waterfowl harvest. It's just it, the species may change. And so we as hunters, I guess, just have to continue to adapt. But you're exactly right. I mean, all, all wildlife, whether it's fish or, or, uh, or birds or, or deer, are looking for a secure place to be for food, for you know, water. Uh, and so you know, whatever places provide those things for them, the birds will be at. You were in, in charge there. During that time, the Outdoor Channel, Sportsman's Channel, Duck Dynasty came around and really focused in on the duck hunting. Do you feel that over the last decade there has been a surge in those duck hunters that have applied for licenses and and really helped the, the industry? There has been a real shift. Um, if you look at some of those numbers that I gave you, um, there have been declines in, in, in hunter numbers, especially waterfowl hunter numbers, mm-hmm. since 1970. And there, uh, it's an ongoing decline of major, major concern to the states, to the, to the Fish and Wildlife Service, to the sporting um, community, I think. Certainly, certainly some of those things that you mentioned are bringing hunters back, and the rate of decline has, um, has changed. Um, and it's not declining as steeply as it was before, um, but um, it's still not back up to peak numbers or right. a long ways to go to peak numbers. Unfortunately, um, you know, talking about change, you know, the amount of habitat available for hunting, for places to go, um, um, has changed a lot too. So in some places, um, you may see crowding now that you that you know, like it was. At peak numbers, um, um, I'm I'm hopeful that we can recruit new hunters, and those those hunters that aren't as avid um, 
will you know come back to the to the sport and continuing on. Brad, we we really appreciate you coming on the show. If somebody wants to go and look out for some of that stuff, what what would you consider some of your best sources for people to find out more information? I guess I would start with uh, a good Google search and then maybe um, talk to some of the old timers and say, you know, what what did you do? I mean, back in that day day and age, you know, I'm sure you did this too, Jim. You know, you you what. Uh, red field and stream sports of field oh, yeah. and oh yeah outdoor outdoor life now those aren't the um, sources of information that they were um, back when we were kids now it's YouTube channels and and right. Facebook Facebook and online forums and everything else and you know that's one of the reasons I reached out to you is I I said okay you guys are the way people are getting um, information yep. now I I want to make but, sure that that we do. Uh, talk about the fws.gov slash harvest survey and it's incredible information i mean you can tell that there's lots of work that goes into all of this information and and will help all hunters if they just go there a participate and b study study a little i mean you're almost doing the the scouting forum well that was why i wanted to to hunters understand that the information that they provide is is useful tool for themselves and that that particular web page that I um, sent you the link to that you're referring to, yep. not only tells you you know what was the harvest um, in in the state, but down to the county level and where where what county that um, you know where that rank is within the state, and so you can look and see you know where Illinois sits in nationally with waterfowl harvest and compare it to Indiana or Arkansas or for that matter, since I'm in Washington State, Washington, and see what species you're harvesting. When when are the peak of abundance? When when do most ducks get shot? If you are planning on traveling to some place to go hunting, what might be the best time to go? Brad, thank you so much, man. We uh, really appreciate it and clearing that up. Just like Brad said, when you I've been polled before and I've sent that survey back in. If you and now I know even more about what that survey did. I just did it because I I figured they wanted to know the numbers, but the feedback for the hunters, um, very clearly the harvest survey for morning doves, um, the morning doves hunting season is set on those, on the harvest information that we get for hunters. And those five questions, I hope don't take you more than two minutes to answer. But if you're, if you, especially if you are a, um, a hunter of not frequently harvested species like rails or gallinules or something like that, you really are the needle in the haystack that the Fish and Wildlife Service yeah. wants to talk to to, to uh, figure out how many you shot. Um, there are not very many rail hunters in North America. And so getting the, getting whatever information we can from you is um, great for uh, understanding what the harvest is and making sure that the regulations are appropriate for those species. Awesome. Well, we're going to post the link up to this survey at uh, the Hook and Hook Experience Facebook page so that everyone can have access to it access to it. And I'll tell you that you'll get lost because you can go through every state and learn all about the uh, the harvest and the, the hunting. So Brad, thank you again for coming on. And we definitely could sit and talk to you for an hour and a half. Any Anytime, Drew and, and Jim, um, you know, anytime you guys have questions, uh, happy to happy to talk to you. And um, like I said, it's I'm, I'm retired now, um, but it's still my passionate hobby and want to make sure that Hunters understand how important they are to the whole enterprise and how they're an integral link to um, the, the future of waterfowling or the future of migratory bird hunting. 
Here at the Hook and Hunt Experience, we love to eat. Now let's get that mouth watering with It's Great on Your Plate with your host, Matt Cheever from Heartland Outdoors Magazine. You know, uh, a lot of the keys to cooking really good game meat uh, don't just start with marinades and simple seasonings, but it's actually cooking. A lot of us really don't know how to cook that well. A lot of that starts with cooking outdoors. The more you can cook outdoors over an open fire, a fire pit, some charcoal, uh, around a campfire, that's where you truly, truly learn some good chef skills. You know, the difference between high, medium, and low on a stove are a lot different than outside, but you have to sit there and listen and learn and and watch your meat cook over over an open fire. That can teach you so much about cooking wild game. Uh, you can quickly ruin duck on high temperature. You can not get it quite right on low temperature. So you quickly learn what medium is. And uh, when you learn those skills about cooking over an outdoor fire, that's just amplified. When you get inside, you cook over a range or your gas grill at home or a smoker. You're so much better prepared to, to learn the textures and the thicknesses and the, and the the just the color of the meat, what it looks like at different temperatures because. We all know overcooking wild game is not the ticket. That'll ruin somebody on it for sure. So if you can get out there and just and really work on uh, learning to cook over an open fire a couple times a year, that ups your game in the kitchen so much more. And, and in the winter and the, the months you can't grill, it'll pay dividends, really pay off uh, enhancing that wild game. In the outdoor world, there's always something new, and here's a Hook and Hunt Experience product review presented by Crowley's Crawlers, the plastic worms that make sure you're hauling in the limit every time. I came across this product. It's called a Cushit. It's C-U-S-H-I-T. I came across the Cushit products years ago, saltwater fishing. Um, and they're basically um, a foam-like material that, that you can just slide on your rod butt. For saltwater, when I first found out about them, is we're trying to pull these snappers up from 100, 200 feet of water. And after the first day, my ribs, aside of me, was all black and blue just from that rod butt going down in there. And one of the guys brought on a boat one of those cushions. Well, you put it on the rod tip and it takes all that pain away. It keeps that blow from hurting. Um, well, this past week we were out filming the show. We had so many fish on a frog and I set the hook so many times on my frog rod that I had black and blue marks again from bass fishing going up and down my side. And I went, I wonder if cushion makes I've seen the bass style one, but I'm like, those are a little too big for me. I wonder if they have anything new. So I go on the website and they do. It's called the Cushit Elite Pro 2. And it fits rod butts from 7 8 inch all the way up to 1 and 3 16 I'm telling you right now, I got three rods that I bought them for this week. They easily fit on the end of your rod butt. Every time you set the hook, that blow will be cushioned. Now, if you don't set the hook a lot, <laughs> you may not need one. But if you do set the hook a lot, I am telling you, it will save the pain. It helps put a little bit more balance on your rod if you want to. But when you are when you set the hook hard on certain techniques like jig fishing or worm fishing or frog fishing, a cushion is definitely what you need. The website you can go to to find them, it's made by Lunacy Sports. So I'm going to spell this out for you. You can go to L-U-N-A-S-E-A sports.com. You can find it there, endorsed by 2016 Bassmaster and now Redcrest winner Edwin Evers. And I am telling you guys, this thing is fantastic. Go to lunacysports.com. It's a great, great accessory for any one of your fishing rods. Hookingontv.com has been educating and entertaining the world of hunting and fishing for years. Let's find out about the latest from Hook and Hunt TV's Jim Crowley on the Hook and Hunt Experience. Jim, you've had a, a little bit of success with the weather treating you right and, and life allowing you to get out and shoot some shows. Uh, what's been going on with Hooking on TV? 
Uh, we had an incredible week last week and, you know, we were looking at the, the lunar tables and everything and everything played in our favor for two days. And so we went up uh, to this bodies of water. There are a series of, of gravel pits up in Northern Illinois and we hit it extremely well. We filmed three shows, three completely separate shows in one day. Wow. Um, and I, we've done two in one day before, but never three. And the bite was on just a varied amount of things. There's a front coming in, then the front came through. Uh, we were able to film a show on a frog. We got a, a first in a long time. We filmed a show, great show on spin, on clear water spinner baiting, um, and then filmed one on swim jigs. But the show coming up next week, is going to be on frogs. And I, we did something that we've never gotten before. We had the drone about 200 feet up in the air, um, showing everybody where we were fishing, showing how we were fishing these grass lines. And a largemouth, about five pounds, blew up on the frog while the drone was in the air. And the way the sun was hitting on the water, it literally looks like somebody dropped a bomb in the water next to the boat. Oh, wow. It, uh, it was one of those shots that you, you had to be at the right place at the right time with the right sun angle and actually have a fish actually cooperate. So we go right from the drone. Matter of fact, when we do the close of the show, you can still hear the drone buzzing above because we never had time to pull the drone down. And it was amazing. It was incredible. We put spot lock on one area and in an hour, I've never ignited I've never ignited a school of bass like we did on this one. And in deep water, that can usually happen. And a smallmouth, we've done it before where you catch one and two or three are swimming with it and you know it's going to be good. We sat in one weed bed and in one hour, we caught 40 largemouth and lost another 15, pulling them through the grass. I snapped the reel. I it, the, reel, the reel foot on the rod snapped. I had to pull the fish in by hand. Oh my gosh. Got, 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 got the line in. Um, there's so much action and adventure in this episode. I'm literally shaking at the end of the show. That's how, when we were talking about how I got my black and blue marks, that's why I bought one of those cushions. And when you see the show, it's fun to watch. It's funny. We show you how to be a much more effective frog fisherman. I don't know how many fish are in this show. I don't, but there's a lot, but there's so much information and so much action that this one's going to be a killer. Check it out. Hookandhunttv.com. Or go check them out on Facebook at Hook and Hunt TV. Here's the latest Hook and Hunt experience hunting and fishing scouting report. Brought to you by the Tackle Box Bar and Grill, where the stories are as big as the fish baskets and beer. The Tackle Box Bar and Grill, downtown Fish Creek, Wisconsin. Well, Jim, it seems as though that fishing season is now upon us and great things are happening in the water, under the water. What do you feel is the latest wave of how things are going to happen it, it's going to be an incredible year we last week I, I like we were talking about i filmed those shows then i had a day off and then i was actually fishing a bass tournament and then we went to lake michigan and had that great day um these fish at, at least largemouth wise now so if we're looking at them they are most of them are done spawning in most places across the country, even in the north now, they're probably coming close. They're on post-spawn. Some places are on, are full on on their summer patterns. They're into their feeding mode. Um, fishing the Great Lakes like right, right now for salmon and trout is full on. Uh, and as some of some of those bigger salmon start finding some of that warmer water that starts to warm up, I, I think July, June, end of June and July are going to be fantastic uh, this year for, for those great lake species and everybody I've talked to Wisconsin wise, the smallmouth fishing has been great. The walleye fishing, they just had the muskie opener in Wisconsin. So this year seems to be 
is going to be a really, really good season from people that I'm talking to. People are catching fish and they're catching a lot of them. If you're going to get out anytime, I suggest you do it because right now hot is hot. You'd have never thought this a month ago. Right. You Because of weather, because of all the other crap that was going on. I got news for you. Not only is the economy starting to blow up, the fishing is blowing up and, and things are back and they're back in a good way. Get out, get fishing, take your kids. Because from what I've seen everywhere across the country, it flat out is on fire. The Hook and Hunt Experience wants you to live well from the live well. Here's your old buddy, Stinkbait Rivers. Ha <laughs> ha! Hey, it's your old buddy Stinky. Welcome back to another edition of Live Well from the Live Well. Thoughts, tips, and observations to make your life a little bit better. Hey, uh, listen, uh, I wanted to tell y'all, I, I went fishing with my buddy Bob the other day. You know, we went out, we were fishing for some bluegill to have a little fish fry down at the campground. And we were out on the river, and uh, uh, Bob was sitting up on the bow of the boat, and a funeral procession went right over the bridge where, uh, where we were fishing at. So Bob sat up straight and took his hat off and put his hand over his heart and... He sat there just like that, just as still as could be until the whole funeral procession got over the bridge. When he was done, he put his hat back on. I looked at him. I said, Bob, I didn't know that you had that in you. I didn't think you were a religious man. He says, well, I'm not, but, you know, it was the least I could do. I was married to her for 30 years. <laughs> uh, you can catch me on Facebook at facebook.com slash stinkbaitrivers. Until next time, this is your old buddy Stinky saying, you betcha. <laughs> We can't leave you high and dry. Here are some words of wisdom in the last cast with Jim Crowley on the Hook and Hunt Experience. I had the opportunity, as we said a little earlier on the show, to, to take my stepdaughter out fishing again, and, and I take her out as often um, as I can. I've got to more this year uh, because of things that were going on. But this last opportunity was really cool because not only did I see her catch fish, I saw her grow a little bit in her love for the sport of fishing, and that was more important to me than anything. Parents, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you something. I was very fortunate um, that my dad always wanted to take me fishing. And I didn't realize it at the time, but we were learning something together in common. We were getting something together in common. We were getting our love of something together in common. When your child hooks their first fish or hooks another fish or has a great outdoor adventure thanks to you, that will be what comes up at the dinner table at Thanksgiving, at Christmas, at graduation, at those other big events in their life, that event with you will be one of those big events. Never underestimate a memory. Thanks for stopping by the show. Head over to the Hook and Hunt Experience on Facebook and give us a like and find out more about this week's show. The Hook and Hunt Experience is brought to you by HookandHuntTV.com. Stop by and watch the latest episodes airing now. Moxie Dog Treats. Your dog will love you. And brought to you by Crawley's Crawlers. The plastic worms that make sure you're hauling in the limit every time. And the Tackle Box Bar and Grill, where the stories are as big as the fish baskets and beer. Join us next week for the next episode of the Hook and Hunt Experience.